0: As I was saying a few minutes ago, uh, the Christians are one of the three peoples of the book, at least as defined by uh, Muslims. Uh, The other people of the book are the Jews. Uh, And two students of the Christian New Testament particularly are my guests tonight. They are Bart Ehrman, who's been here before, chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina, and uh, the author of a number of important works, the most recent, just quoted, Misquoting Jesus, uh, the story behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. Our other guest is Margaret Mitchell, who's also been here before. She is Professor of New Testament and Early Christian Literature at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. And she is the co-editor of the first volume of a new major series, The Cambridge History of Christianity. You would both agree, I'm sure, that... uh, for uh, that, that our New Testament, or your New New Testament, is uh, far from the original words that we received. That is, uh, it was done in Greek in the main, and it has been copied and uh, copied and copied again by scribes. This is the way in which Bart Ehrman defines the problem. And those scribes, over the many years, have not only made Uh, accidental errors in their copying, but of course have also made intentional alterations. And all of this, in addition, needs to be added to a more basic fact, which Bart Ehrman covered in an earlier book, that there were many other potential gospel documents and potential biblical documents which were excluded when finally the New Testament was put together. Therefore, the question that you press, Bart, is... How can we trust? How can we know what the early Christians originally meant and believed and experienced?
1: Well, that's right. I, a lot of my students in uh, North Carolina uh, just assumed that the Bible dropped from heaven a few years after Jesus died, and as and you
0: did when you were an undergraduate <laughs> at Moody Bible Institute. Uh,
1: yeah. Well, I I too believed that the at that time that the Bible was uh, inspired by God, given by God to humans, and that. Uh, basically the Bible I was reading which of course was an English translation of the Bible mm-hmm. was uh, without any errors but of course it's the great been... word is it was inerrant, inerrant. inerrancy is a
0: fundamental uh, conviction of the school of Christianity that is commonly called fundamentalism.
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, the uh, The idea is that uh, the Bible is, is without mistake in everything it says, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's dealing with doctrine or Christian practice, or if it's dealing with scientific statements, that it, it's completely without error.
0: And when Jerry Falwell or Charles Colson or any one of a number of others uh, uh, asserts, it's in the book, therefore it's true, that's the basis on which they make that assertion
1: uh, that's right. It's based on a prior assumption that this is the book that God has given his people yeah. not just not just uh, that god's given given people their scripture, but that God's given the very words of the text uh, that's a, That's an assumption of fundamentalism.
0: now is that assumption obviously incorrect, or might you argue if there have been errors or variations and uh, and difficulties in the translations from one language to another, God after all has overseen the whole process and those errors are in essence of his causation and meant to somehow deepen our understanding.
2: Well I think that religious communities choose canons of texts and then they choose ways of valorizing or describing why those are the texts that they Mm -hmm. chose to live by Um, and one of those models is a model of inspiration that holds that individual human beings basically just held the pen and God whispered it into their ear and they were responsible for transcription rather than for authoring these texts. Um, That's only Mm. one model of inspiration, but it goes hand-in-hand with the inerrancy conclusion that Bart was just discussing.
0: It's so interesting to look to the text of the New Testament itself, and particularly to the fourth of the Gospels. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are the so-called synoptic Gospels. They tell the story. The fourth, by John, whoever he was, has sort of a different purpose. But you remember, of course, the opening lines. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That seems to insist on uh, the Bible, rather the New Testament, as somehow conveying directly god's will god's message god's truth
1: yeah the uh... Th- that verse is sometimes read that way uh... in in some uh... in some circles but if if you keep reading the uh, beginning of john uh... in verse fourteen it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory uh... so in fact what what this is of the only
0: begotten of the father full of grace and truth
1: exactly so this is actually a reference to christ who is a is the Word of God who's become a human being it's not a not a reference to the uh, to the Bible or to the New Testament to the words that we find in the Christian scriptures. It's a reference to Christ himself, who's the Word incarnate now,
0: before we go to the New Testament as we have it, and the many uh, additions or emendations it has gone through, let's go to that which is covered in an earlier book of yours, Bart, namely the Battle of the first century over what should be included in the uh, Testamentary canon.
1: Yeah, in fact, these battles over which, which books to include, which Gospels to include, which epistles, uh, took place over uh, more than just the first century. It, it, was, uh, it started out in the first century, but a battle that continued on for several centuries. Uh, we know that there were a number of Gospels that were available, for example, not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we know of the Gospel of Peter, which we still have, or the Gospel of Thomas uh we we've discovered some gospels in modern times the gospel of mary the gospel of philip and there were different christian communities who thought that these books were scriptural authorities uh eventually though uh the christian church had to decide which books are going to be accepted as scripture and it ended up with the uh, four gospels that we know well, from where the is the Testament.
0: final decision made and what are the great councils?
2: Well, the great the 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 line in the sand that seems indisputable though it's retrospective is in a festal letter of Athanasius dated to 367 to the Easter of 367 where we have I- very clear reference to the 27 books that are now in the New testament Mm -hmm. Um, one of my colleagues likes to tell me however that um, lutherans actually never signed on to those 27 Mm -hmm. books and at least for the catholic church with the the roman catholic church it's at the council of trent when those 27 books officially um, get uh, get listed there are other instances looking back where you can see the emergence of a coherent set of texts that certain groups wish to claim over and against others. And the famous text there is from Irenaeus, who argues that there could only be four Gospels, just as there are only four winds, only four pillars holding up the universe. Um, Obviously, that's his perspective, and he's fighting on two fronts against those who would want to pick one Gospel, Martian, for example, only wanted Luke, and against those who would want a plurality of Gospels, and he compromises with the four.
0: Of the four, are there any serious and lasting contradictions between any two or more of the four?
1: Uh, well, yeah, that's that's part of the problem with the view of the inerrancy of the Bible, is that when you look carefully at these books, there do appear to be discrepancies. I think I think people normally don't see the discrepancies because the w- of the way they normally read the Bible, if they read it, uh, which is that they read through Matthew and, uh, from the beginning to the end, then then they read Mark, and it sounds a lot like Matthew, and then they read Luke, it sounds a lot like the other two, then you read John. So that's, that's reading the Bible, uh, what I would call... Uh, um vertically from top to bottom the other way to read read the gospels is to read them horizontally where you'll take a story in one gospel read that story then compare it closely to a story in another gospel and when you do that inevitably you find that there are discrepancies and so just as one example both the gospel of mark and the gospel of john Uh, are clear when jesus died in relationship to the jewish feast of passover Mm -hmm. in mark's gospel it's clear jesus eats a passover meal and gets arrested after the meal and uh, spends the night in jail And the next morning he's crucified in the gospel of john however it turns out that jesus is uh... put on trial and sent off to be crucified on the day before the passover meal was eaten uh... and so it depends which gospel you read what are the differences in the treatments of the resurrection story
2: of the resurrection story? Well, what, the most significant one um, is one that Bart treats in his book, and that has to do with the Gospel of Mark, which most critical scholars agree, and I, I certainly think is the earliest of the synoptic gospels, and indeed the earliest gospel probably that we have. Well, Mark's gospel in our best manuscripts actually ends at verse sixteen eight, and those who are following along in a New Testament probably have a footnote that demarcates then verses 9 through 20 and says something like other ancient witnesses add because our best manuscripts do not have that section of the resurrection appearances at all. Now it's not true that Mark as sometimes it's said Mark doesn't know the resurrection of Jesus that's not true. Mark prophetically declares that Jesus is going to be risen, and when he does, he goes before you to Galilee. But enigmatically, the text ends that the women left from the tomb after seeing the young man who reports that he is not here, he's risen, he goes before you to Galilee, and they leave, and the text just says, they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid.
0: Don't you also have, in one of the Gospels, one man appearing, and in other of the Gospels more than one appearing.
1: What, what you have is in in uh, the Gospel of Mark, what, the, the women go to the tomb. They shouldn't they, be called
0: men. They should be called angels or something. Well, in
1: fact, in Mark, it says that there's one man. He's not called an angel. No. In, in, in Luke, there are two men that are there, and in Matthew, there's one angel who's there, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's hard to know uh, what what the women saw. And In fact, different women are named as going to the tomb. Uh, they're told different things by this man or these men or these angels. Uh, In the Gospel of uh, Matthew, the women are told to go tell the disciples to to leave Jerusalem and go to Galilee, where they'll meet Jesus. In uh, in the account by Luke, in fact, the disciples are told, don't leave Jerusalem, stay there, and that's where they meet Jesus, is in Jerusalem.
0: This tonight, I think, Bart, is your third, possibly your fourth appearance on this program. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by the very interesting books that you've done. Uh, But this one begins with sort of a, a... confessio pro vita sua, uh, which I've not had before, and one learns from it. It's not an apologia pro vita sua, it's a confessio, and one learns from it that you started as a Christian, as an Episcopalian of moderate involvement, then you had a born-again experience, and that turned you into a kind of fundamentalist, and indeed you then hide yourself quickly to the Moody Bible Institute here in Chicago, where you got the full degree, and then went on to Wheaton College went from a fundamentalist institution to an evangelical institution, uh, and originally you were a believer in the inerrancy and the absolute inspiration of the uh, New Testament. Only when you went on to Princeton to do advanced graduate study in biblical textual criticism did you begin to, dare one say, lose your faith, at least your faith, in the inerrancy of the Bible.
1: Well that's right. It was uh, it was a long uh a long journey uh, for me. I I was introduced to Chicago by coming to Moody Bible Institute. Mm -hmm. I was actually originally from Kansas and uh, so when I was here studying at Moody, of course I subscribed to the views that are held at Moody. Uh, This was back in the uh, early 70s and uh, I was very much a believer in the inerrancy uh, of the Bible. But as I studied the Bible more and started uh, finding that there were passages that were very hard to reconcile with one another, I, I gave up my earlier attempt to reconcile everything and realized that there were, in fact, discrepancies in the Bible, which made me understand it more as a human book uh, rather than a divinely given book, and that, that changed everything.
0: For a human me. book and a multiply authored book
1: multiply authored uh, with authors who come from different situations, who have different ideas, uh, who have different points of view. And these points of view, uh, I think now, uh, we shouldn't attempt to reconcile these various points of view because then we're robbing each of these authors of his own integrity uh, so that what Mark has to say is different from what Luke has to say, which is different from John or Paul. But apart
0: from those uh, authors, whoever they are, of the uh, original uh, four Gospels, you're also arguing in this book that those who copied the Gospels before we had printing, before Gutenberg kind of gave it a, a sort of a concise representation in printed form, those who The scribes who copied the Gospels altered them considerably.
1: Yeah, that's actually the point of the book. Uh, the, the book isn't so much about the differences among the Gospels. It's really about the scribes who copied these texts yeah. and how they changed them. Sometimes they changed them accidentally when they were tired or they were incompetent. They, they simply made mistakes. And other times they uh, intentionally, it looks like, they intentionally changed the text to make them say what they wanted them to say.
0: Well, some commercials are all overdue. We render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, as well as unto God the things that are his, capital H. And so we pause briefly for uh, some commercials. But then let's look look at some of those changes that were intentional rather than merely accidental, and what they have to do with the evolution of Christian theology and Christian doctrine. We return directly to Bart D. Ehrman and Margaret Mitchell after this. And we return to Margaret Mitchell and Bart D. Ehrman. Margaret Mitchell has done vast and significant work in the history of early Christianity. She is professor of New Testament and early Christian literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School. She is the co-editor of the uh, new, uh, the first volume of the new Cambridge History of Christianity. And if you think that earlier in her career she wrote uh, an interesting novel about the Civil War, uh, you're wrong. Uh, she's the other Margaret Mitchell. Uh, not the one who wrote... What's the name of that thing?
2: Gone with the Wind. Gone
0: with the Wind, of course. Bart D. Ehrman, chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, has done such books previously as Truth and Fiction in the Da Vinci Code, Lost Christianities, and Lost Scriptures. Those are three separate books. And his new book, Misquoting Jesus, the story behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. Let me ask you, Mark, to find... Out of the many, many things that you deal with in the book, one major emendation or alteration, which really altered Christian doctrine as well.
1: Well, uh, I think I think the uh, one. Passage that has uh, probably most affected things uh, historically for the for the history of theology is a passage that's uh, sort of tucked away near the end of the New Testament in the book of First John. Uh, as uh, as many people know, the the doctrine of the Trinity, as it's classically phrased, that there mm-hmm. are three three persons but only one God is is not expressed explicitly anywhere in the Bible. It's a doctrine that comes as people uh, read the read the Bible and they see that God the Father is God, and Jesus is understood to be divine and the Holy Spirit is divine. There are three persons and yet the Bible affirms there's only one God. And so the doctrine emerges that there are three persons but, but one God. But but nowhere in the Bible is that explicitly stated except in a in a verse in First John chapter five, verses seven and eight, where in the Latin Bible uh the latin vulgate which was which was the bu- bible of the middle ages it states that there are three who are in heaven the father the word and the holy spirit and these three are one well uh when when a scholar started compiling a greek new testament instead of the latin bible in the 16th century the scholar who first put put one together and published it was a was a scholar named erasmus and he didn't include this verse. Is that it, the great
0: Erasmus. Of yes, Rotterdam? this is the
1: great uh, the greater Erasmus, the the humanist of Rot- Rotterdam. He uh, he put together the first published Greek New Testament and didn't include this verse about the three who are one. And uh, Latin theologians mm-hmm. uh, went went ballistic on him, and they said that uh, you know that that he's trying to get rid of the doctrine of the Trinity. And Erasmus pointed out that this verse isn't found in any of the Greek manuscripts. And uh, the the apocryphal story is that he put forth a challenge. He said if he can produce a Greek manuscript that has this verse in it, then in my next edition, I'll include it. And uh, as the story goes, they actually produced a Greek manuscript. Uh, in other words, they had a scribe copy out the Greek, and then at that point, they add, he added the verse. They presented this, uh, this uh, manuscript to Erasmus, who was true to his word. And in his subsequent editions, he included the verse, even though it's not in any, any of the early Greek manuscripts. And those later editions of Erasmus were the, one, were the ones used by the King James translators. So that's how the verse came into the English Bible, is simply by this accident of history. Wow,
0: truly fascinating. Now, Margaret Mitchell. You will not object if I tell our audience that, apart from you being a very important New Testament scholar, you are a Catholic. Uh, And in Catholicism, uh, the phrase, in nomine pater, filius et spiritus sancti, occurs again and again. Uh, And that's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. How do you react to the argument and to the interpretation that we've just heard from Bart Ehrmann?
2: Well, I agree completely with the exegesis of this so-called coma johaneum in 1 John. Um, but I would point and I don't, I'm don't. i not pointing as a Catholic but as a Pauline scholar all to 2 right. Corinthians 13.13 13, which says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with all of you so there is actually at least one other place where one can point to a Trinitarian motif within the, the New Testament itself and that dates now, how far now, I, but, but, the, but the, the larger question is uh-huh. and this is I think the, the, the really exciting um, implication of this discussion of the text of the New Testament, is what is it that we expect from a scriptural tradition? In other words, is it a fixed thing that is merely to be handed on with almost no fingerprints on it from a kind of deposit of secure teaching, and it's really that's what Christianity is, Or is a tradition, and maybe you're going to hear me as a Catholic saying this, but I think I'm saying this even more as a historian of early Christian exegesis, is a tradition, a living thing, such that changes are not only violations of an early sort of ground-level foundation, but they're also part of what you do with a religious tradition, is that you adapt it and you hand it on. So this relationship between continuity and change is ultimately what's at stake in this discussion, I think, of how the New Testament comes about.
1: Uh, Yeah, let me, I'd love to respond to that. I I agree with Margaret that you find Trinitarian uh, impulses in the New Testament. I mean, another famous passage, of course, is Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus gives the Great Commission and he tells his disciples to go make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you you obviously get all three named. uh, But it is not there
0: asserted that they are. All part of one triune God. That's right.
1: You don't yeah. have what. What I was trying to argue is that you don't have the explicit doctrine of the yeah. Trinity, where you have three persons in one God, mm-hmm. uh, except in this verse in uh, First John, uh, five seven, which which wasn't originally in the New Testament, uh, and just came into English by an accident of history.
0: We are about you for again some mm-hmm. commercials, but let me just quickly recall something, uh, an event on this program quite a number of years ago. In fact, uh, Hans Kung was teaching one quarter or uh, maybe two quarters in a row at the, uh, at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. He's done that more than once. One of the great Catholic theologians, but one not always in good repute with the Vatican, as we know. And Kung, who's been very interested in Christology, I guess one would call it, and has done many books on that, said with great intensity on this program one night, he was the sole guest and I was fascinated talking with him, he came to, he said, what is the ultimate question? And he was so excited in stating it that he relapsed into his native language, German, he says, Aber wer war er, diesen Jesu? But who was he, this Jesus? And that is a question, of course, that one has to address to New Testament scholars working from the materials which are all of them dealing with this Jesus. What can we... The great... Quest for the historical Jesus as announced as a scholarly uh, pursuit by Albert Schweitzer. I'm kind of wandering through languages at the moment, but uh, in the, sub, the subtitle of his famous book is Der um, Besuch dem historischen Jesu, The Search for the Historical Jesus. It has this kind of New Testament scholarship that the two of you are engaged in in any way advanced the search? For the historical Jesus? That simple question we will address in about three minutes. And we return to Margaret Mitchell, professor of New Testament and Early Christian Literature at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago, and to Bart Ehrman, who is chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and whose uh, new book, Misquoting Jesus, the Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why, is more or less the textual basis. Of our discussion tonight. But I was referring to uh, a book of many years ago, namely the one uh, by Albert Schweitzer, uh, titled Von Reimarus zum Rede, originally. Those are two uh, early, well, one early and one by his time late, uh, interpreter of the historical Jesus. And then the subtitle, Der Besuch dem historischen Jesu, the search for the historical Jesus. Has the search for who Jesus really was, what he really said, what he really represented uh, uh, reality and transcendent reality to be. Has that search been advanced by the kind of work that you and Margaret do?
1: Well, what I what I would say is that uh, the only way to have access to who Jesus really was, to the things that he said, to the things that he did, are uh, if we have records from the, from the ancient world that, that talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And these the uh, the oldest records we have happen to be the ones that are in the Gospels. Uh, and the problem plus, is
0: plus Tacitus.
1: Well, Tacitus refers to him, Josephus refers to him, Suetonius may refer to him, yeah. plenty of the younger mm-hmm. may, but so. But basically, if you want to know what Jesus said and did, uh, we, we, we're we restricted sure. to Christian sources. Uh, but we don't have the originals of any of these Christian sources, including the books of the New Testament. Uh, and the the copies that we have of these books all differ from one another in numerous ways. So before one can even begin the historical question about who Jesus was, what he said and did, one has to see what the textual basis is for that for that kind of historical reconstruction. Uh, so one has to reconstruct the text before one one can then go on to reconstruct. Well, then the how history. are
0: we? That is, how are the members of your guild, New Testament scholars, doing? On reconstructing and getting back to the original text.
1: Well, that's the question that that drives the uh, the the discipline called textual criticism. Sure. Uh, do we have the? Can, are we able to reconstruct the original text? And I and I think in uh, probably most instances we're probably about as close as we're ever going to get. But there are there continue to be questions about some verses, uh, some passages, what they really said, uh, and the the decision you make concerning which manuscript you go with uh, makes makes a large difference in how you understand who Jesus was.
0: Incidentally, one should then uh, address, if only as a sidebar, this basic question. Has the so-called Jesus seminar advanced this study in any significant way?
2: Well, it certainly made it To the front page news and to the bottom of the ticker This is a bunch of guys uh, originally pulled
0: together by, what's his name, the fellow in California? Uh, Bob Fonk, who who just
1: recently died. Did he? I
0: didn't know that. I'm sorry to hear it. And John Dominic Crossan, who used to be here at, um, was it Loyola or DePaul, DePaul. was uh, an important member. And they have published a few books. They're sifting through all the material, uh, trying to determine what words attributed to Jesus are really his.
2: Correct. And they especially gained notoriety because you can find even on the internet, and if you're interested in the Jesus seminar, should the inaugural speech by Robert Funk to the seminar. Which was basically saying that we need to take Jesus back from the Babylonian captivity of ecclesiastical circles and find a Jesus who is doesn't have this overlay of theology and of church. Well, have they? And it was a kind of rallying cry.
0: Have they done something like that?
2: Um, to the satisfaction of some members of the seminar, yes. And there are some celebrated treatments. I think probably some of the most famous are by John Dominic Crossan. Jesus, mm-hmm. um, his, he has what he calls his big Jesus and his baby Jesus. The baby Jesus is Jesus, a revolutionary biography. Um, and then the bigger one is a Mediter- the life of a Mediterranean peasant. Um, another, which goes to the, I think, pretty farthest extreme of... Um, Skepticism is by Gerd Ludemann, which is entitled The Great Deception, which claims that, in essence, the Gospels basically falsify Jesus and put in his mouth an awful lot of things that he doesn't say. He's a member Um, of the Jesus Seminar. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar, and he's actually he's a famous story, especially in Germany, because he was removed from his position of teaching um, ministry students at at, uh, the University of Göttingen. Um, And, uh, in fact, there has been... um, uh, a rallying on his behalf by scholars in America and throughout mm-hmm. the world because on the grounds of academic freedom that one should, as an historian in the discipline, be able to make certain, uh, certain judgments.
0: Well, to come right to it, Bart Ehrman, as the kind of student you are and have for so long been, what's your best estimate, guess, hunch, as to whether Jesus believed himself to be the Son of God and or uh, a portion of or an emanation of the Godhead. Uh,
1: well, my view on that is that Jesus Jesus may well have thought of himself as a son of God, in the sense that people who are uh, intimately connected with God are connected as a child is sure. to a parent, uh, and that Jesus, uh, I think, understood himself to uh, be especially close and intimate with God. And I think he probably prayed to God, saying, uh, Father uh... and he probably taught his disciples to pray our father uh... and to that extent he understood himself to be uh... A, a son of god But i don't think that jesus understood himself to be uh... himself to be divine i don't think he believed that he was someone who had come into the world uh... from a pre-existent state uh, you, you do find Jesus uh, indicating things like that, especially in the Gospel of John, our our latest of the four Gospels. But in our earlier Gospels, Jesus doesn't make claims to divinity, and I think the historical Jesus probably didn't understand himself to be divine. Would it be
0: fair to say that of the four Gospels, it is only, uh, or it is most fully, the fourth of them, John, the non-Synoptic Gospel, which uh, which creates Jesus as God? or the an emanation of God himself?
1: Well, I think that's certainly one of the themes of the Gospel of John. I, there are other texts in the New Testament which also suggest Jesus' Later, divinity.
0: not the, not well, the three synoptic Gospels.
1: Not the three synoptic Gospels, but already as early as the Apostle Paul, who was sure. writing before the Gospels of the New Testament. Uh, the
0: Pauline Epistles clearly are asserting Jesus as... A portion of the Godhead
1: uh, well, I mean, it's difficult to say because Paul never spells out exactly what he's thinking or mm-hmm. or how, how he understands it, but at one point in in one of his letters, the letter, letter to the Philippians, he says that Christ was in the form of God and didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself to become a human well that, that sounds like a doctrine of incarnation, whether that it's hard to know exactly how Paul understood it, but it certainly has that flavor, I would say.
0: What do we make? From the same realm of scholarship that you are drawing from, and in which you are both major contributors, what can we make of the story of the crucifixion itself?
2: I think that there is no doubt that Jesus of Nazareth was went to his death at the hands of the Romans because the Roman form of death of rebels in the provinces is crucifixion. I think that is, in fact, with with E.P. Sanders, who I think is one of the best of the historical Jesus researchers, that seems to be an indisputable fact. It also meets this so-called criterion of embarrassment. Um, that is, that nobody would make up that the founder of our religious cult was a seditionist executed by the Romans. And we find it also, it meets this criterion of what they call um, multiple attestation, meaning different authors in different kinds of texts refer to the same thing. And Paul has Jesus dying on a cross and so also do the synoptics. And I think that's quite clear. What we do not know, and I'm not quite sure we ever can know, is whether there was or was not collusion of Jewish authorities in the death of Jesus. The gospel accounts are so heavily apologetic because they're trying to do two things at once. They're both trying to punish Jewish co-religionists who are not on the bandwagon of the Jesus-believing movement, and they're trying to show to the Romans, we are not a seditious people. So therefore, they progressively, you can watch them do it, take the responsibility for the death of Jesus off of Pontius Pilate, off of the Romans, and, and place it onto the Jewish leaders and people.
0: Actually, you do address, Bart, in uh, some portions of the book, the question of how the reworking of the New Testament, uh, and for that matter, the struggle and the success and failure of different competing Christianities, ultimately set up the conditions for the emergence and the lasting presence of anti-Semitism.
1: Well, that's right. Uh, my 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 view of this is similar to Margaret's. That um, as time goes on, uh, Christians became uh, Christians changed. Uh, Christianity started out as a, a as a sect of Judaism. Jesus of was a Jew. His followers were mm-hmm. Jews. They kept the Jewish law. They followed Jewish customs. But uh, within several decades, Christianity had become something like a, an anti-Jewish religion. Uh, and it's interesting that the anti Judaism that you start finding in some of the later writings, even of the New Testament, came to affect scribes who were copying their texts of the New Testament. Just to give, give one example. In, in the Gospel of Luke, there's this famous prayer where Jesus is being nailed to the cross and he, and he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're mm-hmm. doing. Yeah. Now, we know from uh, early Christian interpreters that this was normally a, a understood to be a, a prayer not for the Romans, but for the Jews who were, who were responsible for, for having Jesus uh, uh, turned over to the Romans for death. And uh, so it's interesting to find that in some manuscripts we have of the New Testament, that prayer is taken out. Absolutely, uh, completely deleted, and you wonder, well, why would a scribe, who's copying this text, take out this prayer? Well, it's precisely because Christian scribes don't want Jesus praying forgiveness for the Jews, because for these Christian scribes, Jews were not forgiven for what they did. In fact, Jews were held accountable to God for that. Who are these scribes you're talking about? That is, where do we place them uh, chronologically? These are these are anonymous Christians living in the second, third, fourth centuries are the ones that I'm I'm talking about, who would would have been the literate uh, Christians in the communities. Mo- most Christians, of course, couldn't read or write, just because m- most people couldn't read or write. But uh, there were people in the Christian communities who could read or write. So and- he
0: describes that early, rather than in the 10th century in a scriptorium in France or something. That's
1: right. Although even in the tenth century uh, in a scriptorium, there were changes being made to the text. Yeah. But most of the really interesting changes in our manuscripts were probably made in the second and third centuries before these books were collected together and given a high status of being scripture. Do those
0: changes also reflect the continuing competition between different forms of Christianity.
1: Absolutely. The one, one, of the, uh, one of the earlier books that I wrote dealt with just that question of how there, there are disputes among Christians, uh, groups called heretics, uh, and charges that heretics are changing the text. And, and in my book uh, I, I looked at places where the text got changed not by the heretics but by the group of Christians that ended up winning the debates. Uh, and so I called this book The Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. What's an example of that? Uh, an example is the uh, there's a there's a famous passage in uh, Luke's Gospel again where Jesus uh, is praying before his uh, arrest. and uh, in most manuscripts, uh, Jesus of Luke, Jesus com- is completely calm and in control of the situation. But in some later manuscripts, Jesus turns uh, becomes greatly agonized and he begins sweating great drops as if of blood, and an angel has to come down and minister to him to to support him in his agony. This view of Jesus in agony is completely against the way Luke portrays Jesus otherwise. And so you wonder why would scribes put this in about Jesus being so agonized? Well the reason they put it in is because this shows Jesus to be very human. He's, he's agonized in the face of death and he's sweating blood. Uh, that's, how, that's how human he is. He's feeling human emotions. The reason scribes cared about that is because there were some Christians who were claiming that Jesus wasn't really human. He was fully God and only seemed to be human and he didn't really suffer. Well, these scribes want to emphasize, no, he really was human. He really did and suffer. what school
0: of Christianity
1: is that? Uh, well, the, the school that said that Jesus wasn't really human, it was a, it was a group of Christians that scholars call the docetists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it comes from a Greek word, "dokeo," which means to seem or to appear. And so they thought Jesus seemed to be human. He He only appeared to have flesh and blood. And this became then one of the early heresies that came to be condemned in the second and third centuries.
0: Other heresies also make their appearance in this scriptural reworking of the New Testament, do they?
2: Whether it's so much on the part of... I mean, one of the issues that I'd like to toss on the table is what the line is between scribal changes as one mode of changing the text, to use the language that Bart uses and with which I have a few debates just because whether, whether the text is as fixed as that suggests, I'm not quite so sure. But that's one mode of dealing with it. But another is how you interpret the text that you have and the choice of which text. And the most famous example there is Marcion, who is f- flourishing at Rome somewhere around the year 140, and is quite famous for having only one gospel, the Gospel of Luke. And at that, his own, according to Tertullian, edited version of the Gospel of Luke. So that, that, that's like on the borderline, I think, between um, author, scribe, and interpreter as one, making changes, if you will, to the text, but also interpreting the text in a certain way in order to have a Christianity without Judaism. Uh, Luke is a little hard to do that with, so you have to slice off the first two chapters, me, and that's what Martian Let me did.
0: return you to uh, an aspect of modern religious life, namely the presence of uh, the rise of fundamentalism. I don't quite know its full history, um, but I know that it's, it was a, a significant American Christian movement. Uh, where does it date to, in fact?
1: People date it to different times, but I think the 1920s is the time when it really becomes prominent with a, with the debate uh, between people who were uh, classically liberal and those who wanted to emphasize the fundamentals uh, of the faith.
0: And the key proposition in fundamentalism is that the Bible is inerrant; every word is true. Though obviously you can then argue as to what truth is being conveyed by some words, and that would leave room, I suppose, for debate even within the ranks of the fundamentalists, wouldn't it?
2: And And that statement that the Bible is inerrant doesn't in and of itself determine which scriptural text you pull on for what contemporary debate. Right so I mean it's very, there's a very interesting contemporary example of this that I thought was was quite telling is that um in the debate over homosexuality, which is, as you know, a huge issue among Christians and between Christians and other citizens mm-hmm. in the culture, um, there are basically three biblical texts that are especially addressing oh, yes. this question. none of them is on the lips of Jesus. So some Christians who are in favor of acceptance of homosexuals say, where does Jesus condemn homosexuality? And I read a recent article by a a fundamentalist advocate named Joe Dallas, who basically says, whoever told you the Gospels are more important than anything else in the Bible? Why not just pull yes, on Leviticus, are. pull on Deuteronomy, pull on Paul in First Corinthians, right. Six, pull on Old Testament because do, it's doing what we yeah. want to do.
0: I pull right? on Old Testament as well as New. Right,
2: and so yes. therefore well, the words of Jesus are not more authoritative uh-huh. if they don't help you to make that argument.
1: That's right, but you, that, uh, you know, and so what you do is you pull on the Old Testament when uh, it suits your purposes. But if if uh, if you you know if you really want to pull on the Old Testament, then you also don't eat pork and you stone to death your children when they disobey you. And uh, so uh, it's really a matter of pick and choose. It
0: is. We are again due for some commercials. I still am just pondering in some confusion, are there embarrassments that go with fundamentalism? And if so, how are those embarrassments handled? And I will return uh, in pursuit of that and related matters, looking at modern Christianity and its uses of the New Testament after we pause for this. And back to Margaret Mitchell of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and to Bart Ehrman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina. And shortly on to your calls. We're opening the lines right now. The number, as ever, is 5917200. We're interested in hearing from biblical scholars, plain, ordinary readers of the Bible, religious uh, persons of clear conviction, persons of religious confusion, or of r- religious disdain or, uh, for that matter. Or simply, uh, uh, what other categories are there? I've kind of covered atheist, agnostic, and religionist of various varieties. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. The lines are now open for you. Also, if you're listening over the internet at some greater distance, uh, the other expedient, of course, is to reach us via email, and we try to read some of that email on the air, the address being extension 720 at com extension 720 at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or 591-7200. We'll be on to the phones, I do predict, and virtually promise, in about 15 minutes. But I want to come back to modern Christianity uh, and to fundamentalism, which does argue the inerrancy of the inspired word of the Bible. I guess they mean both in the Old Testament, that is, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament, the Christian Bible, how then do they handle the embarrassments that you and people like you keep turning up for them uh,
1: well i think I think the the line of most uh, educated fundamentalists is that the the Bible uh, is given by God uh, in an inerrant form but but that the original uh, Bible. So the the what they call the autographs, the the originals of the books, were the ones that God inspired. And that of course, as humans copied these texts, they uh, human hands make mistakes. And so the idea. Why would God
0: allow that to happen?
1: Well, I think that's a major problem. Uh, in fact, for me personally, when I when I started shifting away from being a fundamentalist, uh, this was one of the questions that drove the shift. Is that uh, my question became if if God performed the miracle of inspiring the originals, why didn't He perform the miracle of preserving the originals? Yeah. Because it it doesn't do much good to say that the originals were inspired if we don't have the originals. Uh, so. Uh, b- but e- even with that, I think most most fundamentalists or strong evangelicals even would say that uh, what we need to do is get back to the originals as best we can, get through the get through the mistakes made by scribes, get to the originals, and those those are the inspired ones.
0: So you do get the same sort of biblical critical scholarship done by as you do done by fundamentalists. Is that the case?
2: It, it depends on where you're speaking of biblical interpretation taking place. I think in most churches it takes place on the basis of an English text without a lot of discussion about where that English text came from. Um, Mm -hmm. But you do also have people who learn Greek and Hebrew because what they're seeking is the original meaning. And when you teach Greek and Hebrew to students, you know, the light bulbs go on and it's, it's really great fun to see people interacting with the original version of the text, but they soon get disappointed if they think that they're going to have an unambiguous meaning just because they're reading it in Greek or in Hebrew, because also those languages, same as English, are open to different interpretations. And that's even before we get to what are the actual words that we think were the closest possible words to what Paul wrote, let alone Paul meant as to whether Paul himself spoke out loud and a scribe wrote it down for him, or he said to the scribe, I want to tell them about this, pen something along these lines. What do
0: these problems have to do with the persistence of the so many different variations of Christian theology and thus of Christian belief and practice? Why uh, there is a, a desire for ecumenical unification of Christianity that has been there for centuries, I suppose, ecumenical movements flourish at times and then seem to decay. Does this scriptural problem somehow augment and maintain the division of the various Christianities?
1: I think th- that's a really hard question to to answer because... Um, my my view of it is that you're going to have different christian groups even if you had everybody agreeing say on a translation of the new testament i mean suppose every christian denomination agreed okay we're going to use the new revised standard version of the bible and that's going to be our text you'd still have differences uh, differences of interpretation because most of these differences don't have to do uh... these days with which words were in the original greek most of the differences among denominations have far more to do with uh... different interpretations of the text and especially with the way different traditions have come down to us through the centuries So that uh, Roman Catholics and uh, Lutherans and Episcopalians aren't really arguing about the original Greek words, they they have a whole different. What are they
0: really arguing about?
1: Well, they're they're arguing about what are what are the appropriate ways to worship God and to understand His uh, working in the world.
2: It's it's been said by those who know the scene better than I that modern American Christianity is really effacing denominationalism in place of which we really now have liberal Christians who are aligned with one another and conservative Christians who are aligned with one another. And one neat example for me on this was that when The Passion of the Christ, the Mel Gibson movie, came out, yep. um, it created, in fact, a kind of coalition of both um conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants who were in favor of the film, and um, without notice, it was quite fascinating to me that the coffee table book for The Passion of the Christ was produced in two different versions. The New Living Translation, which is from up here in Illinois, and it's a, a conservative um, Protestant translation, and the douay Reims. And the douay Reims is famous because it's an English translation of the Vulgate and the Vulgate is, or was, up until, um, uh, up until the Vatican decrees of the last century, the Bible of the Roman Catholic Church. So here you had totally different Bibles. The words on the page next to the images of Mel Gibson's film were different, but there was a coalition because the conservative Christians, Catholic and Protestant, both saw the film as an artifact of their faith.
0: I've come to this program, of course, armed with many, many questions which just reflect my own interests. Uh, and I could, But I must quickly get to the phones. I want to put a last question to you. Uh, an aspect of modern Christianity which flourishes in some denominations and not in others is Christian eschatology and the expectation of the imminent end of time. Uh, the famous book of Hal Lindsay predicted that the world as we know it would end in 1988, and he derived that from a, he thought, an inerrant reading of the Bible. Uh, we've now got a series of books w- left w- behind. Yeah, the Left Behind uh, series. Are they predicting a particular date? It's sometimes very soon. We know that. It's soon. Yeah. Uh,
1: Sooner as we go along. Yes. And in
0: the rapture, the saved will be elevated to heaven, and. Um, Then we'll come back with Jesus as he trails clouds of glory to rule the world for a thousand years. That whole vision comes, they assert, from the Bible. Where did they get it?
1: Yeah, my, you know, I I wrote, the the first time actually uh, I was on this program, as as you know, uh, was uh, when I'd written a book called Jesus uh the apocalyptic prophet of the new millennium mm-hmm. where i actually uh w- one of the things i tried to do in this book was to show that uh, in virtually every generation from earliest christianity till today there have been people who have claimed that the end was imminent that's coming right away this is just a it's a christian phenomenon that's been around forever and in my my view of things, uh Jesus himself anticipated that the end of the age was coming in his generation. He told his disciples that some of you standing here won't taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come in power. And he tells them, uh, this generation will not pass mm-hmm. away before all these things take place. I think that Jesus, like a lot of other Jews in the first century, including the Jews who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls, and like the Apostle Paul, thought that the end was coming uh imminently and this this apocalyptic strain within Christianity has continued on into some rather bizarre formulations in the modern day, such as the, the Left Behind series, which has uh, outsold the Da Vinci Code by a landslide, uh, in fact, uh, something like 60 million copies uh, in print of the Left Behind series.
0: But people like that uh, do find in the, textual, in the textual sources particular proof of their predictions, <laughs> even though the predictions always, up to now, have turned out to be wrong. Predictions about the end of
2: time. Well, this fits in with what we were saying before about, you know, it's impossible to swallow the whole watermelon at once. So even those who think that the Bible is inerrant cannot have it all inherent all at once. And so you draw on such texts as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, which are, in fact, it's the earliest Christian text, we think, that's in the New Testament, and the ever popular favorite, the book of Revelation. Um, And this is also this apocalyptic eschatology, meaning an idea that the end of the world is going to come suddenly, not Mm -hmm. gradually. Um, This is a worldview. It's not just a text. It's a worldview that those who um, imbibe these texts kind of put on like a mental helmet or a kind of software, startup software. And it enshrines a view of the world as this time versus the future time, about to happen, us sons of light versus you, sons of darkness, um, we who are sober versus you who are drunk, and so on. And it's an explanatory scheme that for a lot of people works to make sense of their reality. Um, that I mean that that's, in essence why it's so popular, and it has as Bart has nicely put it, these cyclical returns. There's always the problem when it doesn't happen. And um, cognitive dissonance is one way ah, of dealing with the effect. very term.
0: At last, your work touches upon my uh, <laughs> my uh, trivial scholarly field, namely social psychology. The term cognitive dissonance was coined by Leon Festinger, a social psychologist. In fact, one of my professors when I got my degree at the University of Michigan, and Festinger's book *When Prophecy Fails* deals with a such an apocalyptic cult which actually flourished here in Chicago and also in. East Lansing, Michigan, for some reason, Uh, and uh, Mrs., whatever he calls her in the book, Mrs. Birch or something, uh, who was the leader, uh, predicted the day was coming, the Martians were going to land and take off the the saved, and all the rest would perish, Uh, but the Martians, they went down to the lakeshore in Chicago, expecting the Martian UFOs to land, but they didn't, and then the great question was, what do we do now? Some lost faith and were angry, but many others, after a while, got a great reinterpretation that their faith had sort of saved the world, given it a temporary extension before the apocalypse, and then they began to try to evangelize and to proselytize to persuade others of the legitimacy of um, their mission, whereas until then they'd been very secretive and esoteric. That may be and was, Festinger argued that's probably a process which has gone on again and again over history.
1: Well, that's right, and some people have applied that to the understanding of uh, early Christianity, That yeah. that. Uh, as in this U, these UFO expectations uh, in early Christianity, there was an expectation that the end would come soon or Jesus would return. And when it didn't happen, what did the people do? Well, mm-hmm. some, some probably gave up faith. But what happened is the church became more missionary then, uh, in order to convert more people to the same to the same point of view as a way of kind of um, uh, dealing with the problem of uh, of frustrated expectations.
0: I've got to ask, because lots of our listeners are wondering this. Uh, Looking at all these things this way, do you remain a Christian? Bart, do you?
1: Uh, I don't. Uh, I, uh, I stopped being a Christian some years ago. I, I'm an agnostic.
0: And Margaret?
2: I was born a Catholic. My parents died Catholics, and I'll probably die a Catholic.
0: And with that, we will pause and take care of some commercials, then write on to the phones and to the email. 5917200, I see one line available again on um, uh, the phone bank. And, of course, the email is infinite, extension 720 at tribune.com. We will be directly on to your calls and emails after this. The book that has inspired the program tonight is the new one by Bart Ehrman, Misquoting Jesus, the Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why. That's published by Harper San Francisco. I note, by the way, that you're doing an appearance tomorrow night Is it in town.
1: Uh, That's right. I'm doing a uh, book reading and signing at the Fourth Presbyterian Church. That's
0: right here on Michigan
1: Avenue. On Michigan Avenue, yes. At 7.30 p.m. is that right? Yeah.
0: Now then, um, Bart uh, is one of our guests, of course. The other is Margaret Mitchell, professor of New Testament and Early Christian Literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and we go directly to the phones. Here is the first caller. Good evening.
3: Good evening. I was rather amazed and shocked to hear it implied that the New Testament doesn't uh, attest to the deity of Jesus. All one need do is look at the Gospel of John to begin with, where it says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And further on it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us.
0: I actually read that at some point earlier tonight.
3: Secondly, Jesus himself, when he was asked, uh, show us the Father, and Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus had no doubt that he was God. Also, uh, the idea of the Son of God, that in other words, we're all sons of God, this has been back and forth, you know, but there's no validity to that, because uh, why was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified because he was a Son of God like everyone else? No, he was crucified because... Uh, It was determined that he was saying blasphemy and that he was the Son of God as God. When I hear that uh, the Bible is being changed, I think that's a bit misleading. Erasmus changed the Bible, but that wasn't the Greek Bible. The New
1: Testament was. Well, now you've made many
0: interesting points, uh, Sarah, and they require a response. Here's Borderman.
1: Yeah, let let me just say about your last point. it's not a theory that the Bible was changed we we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament uh, something like 5700 manuscripts just in the Greek language that it is originally written in and what's most striking is that no two of these copies of the New Testament is are exactly alike uh, the wording is different in all of them so there, it's not a speculation that these books were being changed uh, we know that they were being changed
3: I understand that there can be difference in the wording, but the question is, is there really difference in the theology? That's Absolutely.
1: There's, there's enormous differences in the theology, depending on which manuscripts you read.
3: Uh, well, that's based on interpretation, again. And, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, my dad was a New Testament scholar, and uh, in fact, from the University of Chicago, and I discussed this with uh, uh, very prominent people at the university. And uh, they don't seem to agree that the theology was very different. Also, what, what really kind of disturbs me is that the Bible wasn't just thrown down from heaven by God and said, here it is, now you folks down there make what you will of it. The Bible was given in the context of the church. And when I say the church, I mean the original church. So the Bible was given in terms of tradition. The Bible is part of Christian tradition. And the Sir, may I ask from... I'm Greek Orthodox. Is that what you're going to ask me? I was
0: about to ask you, from what religious tradition yeah, you... And, yeah, I'm Greek Orthodox.
3: And so the Bible, the context is within the Church, and it's not just the Bible. It's the Bible plus the interpretation yeah. which the Church has given it. And I mean the original Church. Well, clearly
0: and articulately under. argued, let's get some further response from Margaret Mitchell.
2: Well, I think that um, we, we did mention, actually, the prologue to John. And um, so to go back to your original point, um, the, the, it is true, especially a verse we didn't get down to in 118. It says, no one has ever seen God. And then it says um, that, that the, the only begotten God, the one in the bosom of the Father, this one has exegeted him. Um, this is one of the closest places in the New Testament where it's said of Jesus that he is God. In this sense, he's the only begotten God, but he's the one in the bosom of the Father. But this is not on the lips of Jesus. This isn't Jesus saying, "I am this." This is a um, this is the prologue, which is talking about Jesus. And in terms of the diversity of theologies in the New Testament, there is nothing like that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Well, that now, mean that one can. Well, uh, I don't think the word wrong has been said tonight. Um, The statement is whether there are, within the New Testament, a plurality of theologies um, that the critical historian can see. Um, Yes, Christians read according to a rule of faith, and if so, so, within some traditions, if so, you can harmonize those theologies, but the historian Mm -hmm. sees differences.
0: Well, that's all. We thank you for a very interesting contribution, but we must move on. Many others want to get in on this conversation, but I gather, Bart, you had a further point you wanted to make? No? Then on to the next, 5917200, and you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, good evening. Yes, sir.
4: Um, I think uh, part of the—I'm the, the, I'm a little nervous. I really don't call into shows, but I'm very passionate about my Christianity. I'm very passionate about it because I know what God has done for me. Um, God has really changed my life completely. Not believe. I can't understand that. To say that there's more than one type of Christianity, I really don't. I don't feel like that's true either. Uh, the Bible speaks about being born again. Uh, John three sixteen is probably one of the most famous quoted uh, pieces of scripture. You can see it on signs at football games and 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 so forth. A little bit before that, what people don't like to read is Nicodemus came to Jesus. He was a he was a great. Ruler in the Jewish community at the time And he was asking Jesus Questions and Jesus said You must be born again There's no other ways around it So to say When people ask me about my religion I'm not religious, I'm a Christian Well what faith are you? I'm not, I'm a Christian I happen to go to a Baptist church I happen to be a Baptist minister So the first thing is I agree with the first caller The Bible even says about itself It's not for anybody's personal interpretation and yes I know that the Bible's been changed I realize that why did God do that was one of the questions somebody asked why did God allow his son to die on the cross for a wretch like me so that I could be set free of my sins the same God that allows disasters to happen and take back his unprotecting or his protecting hand rather is the same one that allowed his son to die for me and you and the whole world the Bible says
0: a, a strong statement of faith? Does it require a response?
4: There are differences, I
0: think, in the positions individuals I, take. I th-
2: actually, I think I would just like to say that that um, that I think that one can respect different genres, and the genre we just heard is a genre of testimonial, yes, and as such indeed. we accept it. Um, the conversation that we've been having tonight is a conversation about history and as such, there are different canons and warrants and evidence that need to be upheld. So as much as your personal testimony is extremely important and has been heard, um, it is not necessarily um, contingent uh, 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 as a as a fact in relation to the ancient Christian sources, where they came from, and what their wording is.
0: And with that, on to another 591-7200. Good evening.
2: Good evening. Thank yes, you.
5: I'm somewhat in congruence with the first caller however there is a difference and that is as a catholic i am most grateful that we hold that yes it is scripture and tradition the latter being borne out by jesus having commissioned the apostles to teach and in fact said he who hears you hears me where we would differ however is that it's also very clear that on numerous occasions jesus commissioned peter to be the prince of the apostles hence his successors the popes are those whom we look to for ultimate authority and i would also posit that jesus himself desires unity under his successors uh, or rather the apostles and their successors because one of his uh, last prayers was, Father, may they be one, even as you and I are one. Therefore, I cannot in any way countenance that the thousands of different Christian denominations are in any way pleasing to Jesus.
0: Response? Nothing? Why not?
2: Already in 1 Corinthians, a letter written 51, 52, 53, Paul exhorted a tiny group of maybe 75 Christians in the city of Corinth to be united because they were having divisions. Um, The problem of unity and division has been with Christian history as long as it's been recorded, and we live it and we experience it um, still in the world today.
0: All right, thanks to that caller. Here's an interesting email I've got. Um, Clearly there are lots of people who are believers in a more uh, fundamental Uh, quality or faith than the two of you are, Uh, and they are responding both via telephone and in email as well. Listen to this one. Why do you seldom, this is addressed to me, why do you seldom have Christians on your show when you do religious topics? Uh, No evangelical Christian believes what your guests are saying. My wife and I are listening and laughing at their statements. It's like having Hillary Clinton as a guest on a show titled Conservatives Discuss... George Bush. Next time, get someone like Moody Bible Pastor E. Lutzer. I will add that he has been on this program, uh, That is, Pastor Lutzer has more than once, uh, or James McDonald from Harvest Bible Chapel in Rolling Meadows. They are articulate, nationally known authors who are actually Christians. My ears hurt. I have to go now. We have often had evangelicals from uh, and uh, fundamentalists from various local institutions trinity evangelical university out in deerfield a moody bible institute here weeping college etc
1: yeah l- let me just say to that uh to the person who sent in the email that um my my uh, uh my opinion about this is that the the kinds of historical information that uh I talk about in my book uh, misquoting jesus isn't the kind of historical information that is uh that is uh subject to dispute by people who are evangelical or people who are liberal or people who are Christian or non Christian. It it actually deals with historical information. Uh I mean it's a historical fact that we have these thousands of manuscripts and they differ from one another and we have to decide what the original New Testament uh, was. Uh, th- this isn't a matter of interpretation or a matter of a liberal bias. It's a fact, and in fact, <laughs> it's a fact that I learned first when I attended Moody Bible Institute. So that uh, I, I don't think it's a laughable matter. I think it's a serious matter. And I think that it's uh, something that everybody has to take account of.
0: With that, we pause for a quick round of commercials, then directly back to the phones and to the email, five nine one seven two double zero and extension 720 at... Tribune. dot com, and back to Margaret Mitchell and Bart Erman. I think we've heard uh, in the calls and even in some of the email that I've read a certain resistance to what the two of you are saying, uh, a feeling on the part of fundamentalists and possibly evangelicals that this somehow betrays the meaning and the value of Christianity. Uh, who does this sort of scholarship? Is it mostly disaffected former Christians? Uh,
1: well, no, actually, uh, I, I have to say that I. Uh, even though when i was talking about some of my other books uh... my comments may have struck uh... readers as being offensive to their christian views The the things i talk about in my book misquoting jesus are uh, are views that are shared widely among scholars evangelicals included in fact most uh... most of the scholars today in america at least who work on the manuscripts of the new testament and try to understand why there are differences and try to reconstruct the originals most of those scholars are evangelical christians uh, I'm I'm a peculiar figure uh, among that group. But then there would
0: be a difference between the evangelicals and the fundamentalists well, as we- to the legitimacy and plausibility of this kind of research?
1: No, not, no, not really. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, it depends how fundamentalist you are, but there, in the, in the national meetings of the Society of Biblical Literature, when we meet as a group to talk about ancient Greek manuscripts, there will be uh, people there from Moody Bible Institute, uh-huh. from Dallas Theological Seminary, from uh, places that are about as conservative as you can get because they understand it's important to get back to the originals because that's what God inspired. So they know full well there are lots of differences, and they know that scribes changed the text. They have a different theological interpretation of the significance of that, but, but the facts themselves they agree on.
0: So perhaps some of the uh, annoyance we're hearing from some callers tonight is that you, Bart, have acknowledged you are what I would call a post-Christian. You once had the faith, but you no longer have it. But surely Margaret Mitchell has asserted she is uh, a birthright and an eternal and a believing Catholic. That's Uh, correct,
2: but if you think that only your group is right, um, then you, in in essence, as one of the earlier callers did, had to claim that I am not a Christian. And um, uh, the the fact is that uh, there are a plurality of Christian viewpoints in the world today, and um, no one group can claim the full essence, the full truth of Christianity. And as I've
0: said, we've had representatives of all of those persuasions and of many major uh, established uh, collegiate or professional institutions, as well as churches, representing both uh, the evangelical and, for that matter, the fundamentalist viewpoint on this program, often in debate, to be sure, with others. Five nine one seven two double zero, the number, and you are the next caller. Good evening. Hello. Yes, sir.
6: Uh, my question relates to uh, the differences in the Gospels, and as it was presented to me from a Catholic perspective, um, Mark's Gospel was first, and then Matthew's and Luke uh, borrowed from Mark, but in addition had their own traditions, some of which were identical and some of which were distinctive to Luke and Matthew, and John was of a totally different tradition. But their writings, as was presented to me or us in our class, was that uh, the authors of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John took from their tradition what was handed through them, wrote it down for their own purposes, sometimes with a particular angle which was important to them at that particular time. And so it's not surprising if you have groups of people growing um, in different communities who aren't necessarily in contact with each other, that some matters will differ, and as a result, some of the stories within each of the Gospels are different, but nonetheless also, there is remarkable unanimity on the fact that Jesus was a man on earth, he died for our sins, and um, that theological truth, which is sort of the bedrock of our Christian faith. So I wanted to comment their comment on the fact that the particular gospels grew out of traditions within the communities which didn't necessarily communicate with each other and as a result it's not surprising that there are some differences but yet there are also remarkable similarities
1: uh... yeah i i think i basically uh... agree with that um... that these gospels uh, are all uh... based on earlier forms of tradition that were handed on orally Uh, and uh, eventually came to be written down by different people. There's a good deal of unanimity among Matthew, Mark, and Luke for exactly the reason you point out. It looks like Matthew and Luke used Mark and probably had another common source, and John is the one that didn't, in my opinion, probably didn't use Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and that's why John's story Uh, is so different. Uh, One of the things this tells us is that Christianity was diverse from its very earliest years and the diversity of Christianity continued down into the second and third centuries when we have Christians believing all sorts of things that might strike most Christians as uh, completely bizarre uh, and the diversity then continued down through the ages till today uh, even with some of our callers we've had Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic uh, Baptist callers who are very uh, convinced of their own points of view uh, but these points of view are different from one another. I I think diversity is just one of the uh, eternal features of Christianity.
0: Um, how would you respond to this? I can only—it's a long, uh, almost essay form that somebody has sent me, so I can't read all of it. But the first paragraph gives the basic theme. The statement of one of your guests that the only go- that only in the Gospel according to Saint John did Jesus evince a claim of deity is shocking. Please have your guests read to your listening audience the text of Mark 2, uh, 1 to 12, where Jesus plainly claimed to be God. Parallel passages to this particular incident are, of course, found in the other two synoptics. Also consider Jesus' self-awareness as an early adolescent, recorded only in the account of St. Luke. That's Luke 2, uh, 41 and following. For making such a patently false and easily disprovable statement. Your guests lack credibility. Uh,
1: well, yeah, I think, uh, of course, we're Margaret and I are New Testament scholars, so uh, we're, we are familiar with Mark chapter two, verses one through twelve. What,
0: what does it say? Let's read it.
1: Well, I, I, I don't need to read. It. I'll tell you what the story is. I'll tell you what he's referring to. This is the story in which uh, there's a paralyzed man who's brought to Jesus, and um, Jesus uh, sees the man who's paralyzed, and he says. Uh, your sins are forgiven uh, but some of the scribes are sitting there and are reasoning in the, among themselves saying that Jesus has committed a blasphemy because no one is able to forgive sins except for God uh, Jesus knows uh, that this is what they're they're saying to themselves and he says why do you reason this way in your heart which, which is easier to say to the uh, paralytic to, uh, that your sins are forgiven or take up your palate and walk and so uh, well it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no physical demonstration that it worked. And so to demonstrate that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, he tells to the paralytic, uh, so take up your pallet and walk, and the paralytic is healed. He takes up his pallet and he walks. Now what what the uh, author of this email is indicating is that this clearly proves that Jesus is God because only God can forgive sins and Jesus forgives sins, Mm -hmm. therefore Jesus is God. Uh, in point of fact, I'll, I'll be interested in hearing Margaret's interpretation of this passage. But uh, it's it's in fact interpreted in a large number of ways. It's interesting to point out that it's the enemies of Jesus who say that it's only God who can forgive sins. And we know that in fact, in in Judaism in the first century, it, uh, there were situations where human beings would proclaim forgiveness of sins uh, it happened in the temple when the priests uh, would perform a sacrifice they would declare that the person who who had brought the sacrifice their sins were forgiven uh, it's also worth noting that in this passage jesus wants to show that the son of man has power to forgive sins on earth and then he heals the man in other words he's trying to show that it's wrong to say that only god can forgive sins humans also have the ability to forgive sins and he proves it by healing this person, so I, I don't think this at all thinks of Jesus as being Himself God. If Mark's gospel thought Jesus was God, why is there no character in the Gospel of Mark that says Jesus is God, or why does Jesus never say I and the Father are one, or why does Jesus never declare divinity in any way in the Mark's gospel? If in fact Mark understands Jesus to be God, I simply don't read this this passage that way. What
0: does Jesus mean when he says, and I'm not sure in which of the gospels you have it, uh, "No uh, man." comes to the father but through the son
1: well but that that he says no one comes to the father but by me it's john chapter 14 me. verse yeah. 6 all of these passages where jesus appears to be claiming to be divine are found in the gospel of john they're not mm. found in the early that Bible. is john yeah. that is john yeah I think Margaret wanted. Well,
2: just on this on the on the paralytic passage, um, the title that Jesus claims seems very, very clear, and it's the Son of Man that he claims he doesn't claim to be God. And also the whole text, the question is who can has the power to mm-hmm. forgive sins except one, i e. God, But that doesn't mean that Jesus is God, but for Mark's Gospel, Jesus works with the power of God. Why? Because at his baptism he received the Spirit. And God himself said of Jesus, you are my son.
0: Hasn't there been scholarly argument, disputation, or at least discussion over the meaning of the term son of man?
2: In yes, enormous debate. And Bart had, had, had mentioned earlier that um that there are biblical texts um in Hosea and elsewhere where all of Israel is a son to the deity. Um also the phrase son of man Baranosh in, in, in Aramaic can just mean a human because it's you know, if you're mm-hmm. a son of a man you too are a human being. But there's also a figure in Daniel seven who is this figure Kabaranosh, this figure like the son of man who appears to have a special role in this end time scenario and the question is did jesus know this text and refer to it and if so did he think he was that figure or did he think someone else was going to be that figure that was yet to come and the debate still rages and the difficulty is also that we don't know for sure if before christians anyone hung on that text an expectation that this son of man was going to come
0: A sort of sociological question. What do you make of the fact, and I think it is an established fact, statistics uh, are are available uh, testifying to this simple reality that in America today the evangelical and fundamentalist churches simply draw larger audiences and hold uh, larger congregations than do uh, the mainline uh, Protestant denominations?
1: Well, my my view of this is that the um that the world we live in is uh so filled with uncertainties uh, and the evangelical and fundamentalist churches provide one thing that people really want, which is they want answers they people are less comfortable with questions than with answers, and these churches give answers uh and so people find that uh, i think uh comforting. Uh, whereas a lot of the mainline churches uh, are open to uh, variety and they're open to questions, and uh, a, a lot of these churches actually prefer the questions to the answers, and that just isn't comfortable for a lot of people.
0: What are your thoughts on the same, Margaret Mitchell?
2: Um, I'm not an historian of modern American Christianity, but what I read is that also these churches are doing marvelous marketing jobs and they do what they call side door ministries, which are that they don't necessarily hope to get people in through the front door and into services, but rather they come because uh, social services are being offered in places and in ways that the larger social security net in our country is not taken care of, Mm -hmm. and therefore people become part of a community, and it is significant to them. Um, There's some very, uh, very careful and some very effective um, community formation going on in these churches from the things that I read.
0: And with that, uh, we are late for a last batch of commercials. Here it or they are. And we return to Bart Ehrman and Margaret Mitchell and your calls to them and for them. Here is the next. Hello, you're on the air.
6: Hello. Um, My question's about the non-canonical Gospels and as I understand it, some were rejected because they were in big conflict or they represented various heresies or whatever, but some were just rejected because ah, they already had enough. You know, the People talked earlier about four was arrived at. To what extent can they rely on these other books to give them the answers to some of the questions they've been talking about tonight? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I can say uh, something about that. The, uh, the other Gospels that we that still survive tend to be later than the four that made it in the New Testament. There's some debate about the Gospel of Thomas, which was discovered in 1945, whether uh, whether it might be as early as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or not. My, my own view about that is that the Gospel of Thomas is probably about 30 years after the Gospel of John, and that uh, another surviving Gospel, the Gospel of Peter is probably from about the same time, early 2nd century, and that as we go on, there are more Gospels that start appearing. We have about Uh, maybe a couple of dozen other Gospels that aren't in the New Testament, including some that are highly fragmentary. These books tend to be uh, most useful for understanding how Christians were talking about Jesus and understanding Jesus Mm -hmm. in the periods in which they were composed. I would say that's also what's valuable about the New Testament Gospels as well, that they're uh, as valuable for knowing what Christians were saying about Jesus as they are for knowing what Jesus actually said and did. But I would emphasize that I don't think these later Gospels, as a rule, really help us very much. to know what the historical Jesus was all about.
0: Uh, our thanks to the caller. Here's a curious email that I want to read to you. Some scholars suggest that the early Christians were, and even Jesus himself was, a vegetarian. Citations John Davidson of Cambridge University, the book The Gospel of Jesus. Edmund Bordeaux, Zachary, uh, the Essene Gospel of Peace. Uh, Eusebius, in his description of early Christians, such as Origen. Some claim that scripture was edited, especially during the time of Constantine, to delete references to vegetarianism or to insert references to meat or fish where none existed. I say myself, parenthetically, uh, the fish was an early symbol of Christianity, I believe. But going on, is there any basis for these scholars' claims? Was there a part of the Vatican Library that contained archives not accessible to most because of its inclusion of, quote, heretical materials?
1: Yeah. Oh, so, uh, yeah, vegetarianism is an interesting thing. Uh, uh, the historical answer is that Jesus probably was not a vegetarian. Uh, although people in the ancient world did not eat meat very often, but uh, you do we know-, know the
0: menu of the Last Supper?
1: That's the that's the point yeah. I'm coming to is that Jesus does eat a Passover meal yeah. and he asks where do you want me to prepare the Passover and that of course involves eating lamb. There w- there was an early gospel that didn't make it into the New Testament called the Gospel of the Ebionites which was a gospel that was used by a group of Jewish Christians called the Ebionites who were vegetarian and it's interesting because the the gospel shows some changes in in the text that matter and the the one that's most uh, interesting is of course in the Gospels John the Baptist is uh, said to eat locusts and wild honey. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read that passage in the Greek, it says that, uh, that he uh, that he ate encredes and wild honey. But uh, in the Gospel of the Ebionites, they changed the letter. So no longer does jo- John eat encredes. He eats encredes, which means uh, pancakes and wild honey. Yeah. So that uh, John the Baptist then maintained a, a vegetarian diet
2: but the, the risen jesus in luke is said as a demonstration that he's actually a real body and not a phantom not a ghost eats a little morsel of of uh, fish according to to luke uh 24:42 and I, there's not i don't think um text critical evidence that that's been inserted into the text and we
0: have also the uh, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, haven't we yes
2: yeah with the so fish. that's not
0: jesus eating the fish but he's supplying it yes. to uh so hundreds of others. 591 five nine one seven two double zero we go quickly to another caller. Good evening.
6: Yes, I have to credit J.B. Phillips with this observation, uh, paraphraser of the New Testament in modern English, that I myself am not bothered terribly by diverse theologies or even little discrepancies in the gospel stories because to me they show that the writers were not contriving to develop a belief system or a mythical hero that we should all buy into, that they were actually being spontaneous. And I guess I'll just jump right to a question. How wide does the gap have to be, or how serious does a discrepancy have to be before it does threaten or endanger Christianity?
0: Very interesting question. I fear time is short, but let's give that a a go around.
2: Well, one thing that, if I may, in answering this question, um, uh, address what may be a concern that that some listeners may have that this is all modern new fangled scholars Looking at divergences that nobody ever saw before, um, the earliest Christian exegetes also were very aware that there were divergences among the gospels and one uh, one early Christian exegete, John Chrysostom in the latter latter half of the fourth century, looks at the four different gospels and he says there are um, differences, but there are not contradictions and He in fact wants to say that the four gospels, the fact that we have four and they were written in four different places, is actually, for him, independent testimony that of their accuracy because if, you know, if, if they were in collusion with one another, we would expect them to all say exactly the same thing, but because they're slightly And that was my point,
4: yeah. And that's
2: for John. That's, that's the case. I think when you say about discrediting Christianity, I think the question has to come back to you as to what is at the heart of Christianity for you that could be threatened by a discrepancy. Um, For the historian, it leads us to interesting new things to see. Um,
0: And with that, Sarah, I fear we're out of time. Thank 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 you so much for an interesting call. Our guests tonight have been Margaret Mitchell, professor of New Testament and Early Christian Literature at the University of Chicago Divinity School and editor of the first volume of the Cambridge History of Christianity. Bart Ehrman is chairman of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and uh, among his many books, now the newest, the one that we've been drawing from tonight, is Misquoting Jesus, the story behind Who Changed the Bible and Why, as published by Harper San Francisco.